Ever have a conversation with your girlfriend that was so good you wish it had been recorded? Think those conversations would be great to be able to share? Wondering if there's support or research for the recommendations your smart girlfriends give about mental, spiritual, and physical health? This podcast was born to answer those kinds of questions. Hello, I'm Sherry Coleman Collins, registered dietitian nutritionist, and here with me in the studio is my girlfriend, Dee Wilson. We're excited to have you joining us for this edition of the Southern Fried Girlfriends podcast. Dee, how are you today? I am doing okay, Sherry. How are you? I am great. It's sunny here today. It's gorgeous and... outside now. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of ugly earlier. But... Yeah. Well, you know. You get the good and the bad at the same time sometimes. <laughs> it's Georgia in spring. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I am super excited about today's topic, D. This is one of my areas of professional expertise. So I'm excited to be talking about food allergies on the show today. And um, one of the things that really drives me in this area is how much misinformation there is out there. And in fact, if you look on social media or you do a Google search, um, you will find that there are tens of millions of response, responses when you Google food allergies, sensitivities, or intolerances. And that is obviously a source of confusion for people. Uh, for sure. I mean, it's to the point where I feel like I can diagnose a food allergy myself. <laughs> well, unfortunately, a lot of people feel that way. But what the research tells us is that when people self-diagnose, 50 to 90 percent of the time, they're wrong. I so, know my body. How can I be wrong? <laughs> well, clearly there's a lot of interest, but there's also a lot of confusion and a lot of misperceptions. So on today's show, I'm hoping we can sort through some of the confusion and answer the questions that a lot of people ask me about food allergies and the topic of adverse food reactions, which is really like all kinds of negative reactions. But there is no way that we can answer every possible question on one show. So I want to encourage people now to um, send us an email at southernfriedgirlfriends at gmail.com if they have questions after the show, um, because we really want to try to make this helpful. And again, there's just no way that I can answer every possible question that could come up about food allergies or sensitivities. And before we get too deeply in, I want to remind people that if they have specific questions about their health, they should definitely talk to their doctor. They should um, not rely on me or this show <laughs> because we're not here to diagnose any condition. Nope. <laughs> and we're not here to give medical advice. This is really about informing or sued, people. You know, or get sued. Yeah. We don't want that. So we want to give you good information and then we want you to talk to your health provider, um, use your best judgment and, um, and do what you need to do for your personal health. All right, let's get into it. All right. So as we start to talk about food allergies, we have to be on the same page, right? Because that term itself, food allergies, is really a confusing one for people. And um, so I want to start with the most basic of questions. <laughs> what is a food allergy? Mm -hmm. And a food allergy is a negative reaction that happens every time a food is eaten. So if you eat a food sometimes and it doesn't bother you and then you eat it one time and it bothers you or you eat it, a, you know, one time it bothers you and another time it doesn't, you've got that history with something, then that's not going to be a food allergy. A true food allergy happens every time you eat a food and it's an immune um, mediated reaction. So the immune system is actually responding. It's an IgE mediated reaction. I, what, what is that? What is IgA? IgE. IgE. Yep. IgE. <laughs> so IgE is an antibody that the body creates to a protein. So in your body, your immune system creates antibodies all the time. 
some of those antibodies are meaningless. Sometimes we, our bodies create antibodies and they don't really do anything. And we don't really know why that happens. But sometimes antibodies um, are used to tell the immune system that a foreign invader, if you will, has come into the body and the body needs to mount an immune response to that thing. So it's sort of like a calling card. It's a reminder to your body that your body creates sort of like a post-it note <laughs> mm -hmm. that says, when you see this again, you need to do something about it because it's not good for you. Can your body develop an antibody against something that you've previously been able to eat? Yes. So like my mom um, was ate pecans like her whole life. Yeah. And then after menopause, for some reason, her body started to react to pecan pecans. So it did react every time she had them thereafter. Yes. But previously, they had, her body hadn't reacted. Yes. So that's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, food allergies can actually start any time in our life. They're more common to begin in childhood. It's more more likely that you're going to develop a food allergy in childhood if you're going to get one. But it can definitely happen any time in your life. And in fact, there are some allergies that happen more often later in life. So things like seafood allergy actually usually manifests itself later in life for some reason. Part of that uh, might be... Yeah, oh, I love shrimp. I better not. <laughs> I know that. Well, some of that might be because, you know, if you think about it, a child, you know, infants and young children don't usually eat seafood, right? They don't, they're not usually eating shrimp or fish very often, although the evidence suggests that they should be eating those foods earlier. Most kids still aren't. They're not eating them. So if you're not eating that until later, you're not going to be reacting until later. But there's probably yeah, more sense. to it than that. Yeah, there's probably more to it than that. And the reality is that food allergies can begin any time in life, um, but they are more common in childhood. So if somebody can eat something sometimes and they don't react and they eat it some other times and they have some sort of a negative reaction, then that's not going to be a food allergy, but it might still be some type of an adverse reaction. Okay. So how do we know? So I think from there, the next most obvious question is, how is a food allergy diagnosed, right? How do we know if we have a food allergy or not? And I mentioned earlier that, you know, most people who self-diagnose are actually wrong. Um, it might be something. It's not that they're not having a negative reaction, but it's not necessarily a food allergy. So I know like with Everett, um, we he has been diagnosed with some food allergies. However, he does still eat some of that food. Okay. Um, but with him, you know, it started out with hives. He mm -hmm. was just breaking out in hives mm -hmm. and couldn't figure out what was going on. He also has asthma. Mm -hmm. So I uh, went to the allergy and asthma doctor and, you know, they did a bunch of skin pricks on his back mm -hmm. and that's where we figured out that he had some food allergies. Yeah. So, what do you recommend for diagnosing? Yeah, so um, so that's a great example. The the first thing to begin with when it comes to diagnosing food allergies is really looking at a history. Mm. What does a history tell us? If you're eating a food and you're not having a reaction, you shouldn't really be tested against that food. So there's no reason to do a skin or a blood test to a food that you're eating without a problem. Because if you're eating it and you're not having symptoms, you're not allergic to it. Um, so that's the first step in a food allergy diagnosis is looking at a convincing history, trying to figure out what food is it that's causing a reaction. And the, one of the ways you can do that is by keeping a diet history. So keeping a, a history history of everything you eat. And then if you have symptoms after you eat something, write that down. And that way, you know, with a food allergy, a reaction typically happens within minutes, but it can take up to two hours to happen. 
for a true food allergy. What are some of those reactions? What does that look like? Yeah, so it could be things like hives, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. It could be itchiness and swelling in the mouth or the throat. It can be um, coughing. Uh, it can be vomiting, coughing. diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Coughing. Coughing can be caused by sort of feeling like you've got something stuck in your throat, uh, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah, and that might be just a little bit of swelling that's happening in the throat. So it can be vomiting, diarrhea, nausea. Um, it can be things like um, like uh, respiratory issues, especially if you have asthma. If some you know, if you've got some sort of a lung issue, asthma, then you might have some wheezing, something like that. And if those are really serious kinds of symptoms, so you want to pay attention to that. The most serious reactions um, include the cardiovascular system. So there can be a dramatic drop in blood pressure, and this is when um, when we really think of anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis typically is a life-threatening reaction, and that can happen to food. Fortunately, anaphylaxis is pretty rare. So it happens, but it's not something that happens, um, fortunately for everyone with a food allergy. The problem is we never know who it is until they have it. So right. that's, that's weird. I thought of the reaction would be, the blood pressure would be opposite, that mm. instead of their blood pressure dropping, it would go high. So why does know. their blood pressure drop? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that question. Okay. It's a good one. I know that that's part of the complication of anaphylaxis, but I don't really know why that happens. I think it just has something to do with the immune system and the immune response. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, so fortunately, most people are not going to have those kinds of reactions, but they're possible. So if you've got a food allergy, you want to take it really seriously because anaphylaxis is really unpredictable. And even somebody who's always had a mild reaction can suddenly have anaphylaxis. So you want to be ready um, for those kinds of reactions if you have a diagnosed food allergy. So let's think a little bit more about diagnosis, right? So we talked about history. And if you've got a history of having a reaction to a certain food, the next step is going to be doing a skin or a blood test. So you talked about a skin test. A skin prick test is when they take um, serum that contains a protein and they apply it to the skin and then they prick through it with a lancet. So they make a small hole in the upper levels of the skin in order to allow that protein to get into the skin and it, and it causes irritation. Mm -hmm. And that irritation um, is usually in the form of a whelp. So a, a circle, a round lump that comes up on the skin that's red and warm, that's a, re that's a reaction. And then they measure the size of that whelp, and it's called a wheel at that point. They measure the size of the wheel, and the larger the wheel, the more likely an individual is to have an allergy to that certain food. And then in, in a serum IgE, remember we talked about IgE, right, being that antibody. So they do a, another test, a blood test. It's a serum IgE test where they're looking again for, a, for an antibody against a specific protein, and they determine the amount of antibody that they're testing, that they're seeing in the blood. So the higher that number, the more likely someone is to have a true allergy. But in both of those cases, the blood and skin tests have high rates of false positive. They're really good negative predictors. So if you test negative in those, then you don't have an allergy. But right. if, if you test positive, it can be false positive. So 50 or 60% of the time with those tests, they're false positives. So the way that it worked with Everett is they did, they did the like thing on his back yep. and his back lit up like a Christmas tree <laughs> and it was very uncomfortable for yeah. him like oh gosh because he can't scratch or yeah. anything and he was crying Aww. this is when he was maybe about 
six or seven oh, years old. So awful. it was just a very unhappy kid at that point. And so depending on the size of the wheel, they then did the blood test yeah. for those things that he reacted most strongly to. Um, and then after the blood test is when they determined the things that he was actually allergic to. Right. So really the next step should be after getting those positive skin and blood tests is an oral food challenge. So an oral food challenge is when in a supervised environment, someone who's tested positive to these blood or skin tests will actually eat the food in the presence of the health providers over the period of about two hours. Remember I said it takes mm-hmm. about two hours, you know, up to two hours for a reaction to happen. So they'll observe that person for up to two hours after they eat a certain food to see if they're going to have a reaction. And they're looking for objective reactions. So they're looking for hives, swelling, vomiting, any of those kinds of very you know, observable reactions. And in in the oral food challenge is the gold standard for diagnosis, but it's also the hardest one to get because it takes a long time and insurance doesn't always cover it. So, um, so the problem is that a lot of people go and they get these panel tests, right? They get the, you know, 25 or 60 foods tested and then they're getting all these positive results, but they're eating those foods and they're not having reactions. And then all of a sudden they believe that they're allergic. So that next step of actually doing the oral food challenge is the best way to diagnose a food allergy. Now, if somebody has had anaphylaxis, if they've had a very severe reaction to a food, they're allergic, they're (laughs) allergic, right? You don't do an oral food challenge on that person because they're not a good candidate. It's too dangerous. They might Mm -hmm. have anaphylaxis again, but if they've never had anaphylaxis, it's actually really positive thing to have an oral food challenge because you can either find out you don't have an allergy, yay, or you can find out what the reaction is going to be like. So, you know, there's been some good research that shows that even in an oral food challenge that's failed, so even if someone takes an oral food challenge and they fail and they and they confirm that they have an allergy and they have a reaction, their quality of life is actually better afterwards because now they know there's not that right. gray anymore, right? They know, Now they know. That makes sense. It does. It does. So I'm a big fan of oral food challenges, but they're not always easy to get. I mean, I think that they're, they're the right thing to ask for. The key is they should be medically supervised. Just in case anaphylaxis happens, you want to be in a safe environment. So you said that they're not always covered by insurance. Isn't it, isn't it expensive? It can be expensive. And I think that that's something that you have to discuss with your health provider. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things a lot of people don't know or don't think about is that, you know, you can negotiate with your health provider for services that are not um, covered by insurance. If you need to have something done they're they're oftentimes willing to work with you on the cost. So that's something I would definitely do if it was my, if I was in that situation. Yeah. So um, the other thing I want to say about diagnosis is really the best person to diagnose a food allergy is a board certified allergist. They're the folks who have the um, additional training to understand the tests a little bit better. You know, a lot of physicians will order panel tests for food allergies, and that's not best practice. Actually, you know, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology recommends against panel testing. They say just what I've said, and that is that you should test against the specific food. You shouldn't be testing for 20 foods when a person's only having a problem with one or two or three or five things. You shouldn't be testing for all those others because you're going to get those false positives and then that can be very restricting for people. About six to eight percent of children have food allergies and about four or five percent of adults have food allergies. So you would think like 
scrolling through Instagram <gasps> or YouTube videos that it's like 50% of the population yeah. has an allergy to some food. Yeah. And if you, and actually if you ask like, you know, groups of people, like how many people do you think have a food allergy? The number you usually get is somewhere between like 25 and 40% of the population. That's what most people think. It's like 25 to 40%. And that's really overstated. And part of that is that a lot of people think that other kinds of negative reactions are food allergies when they're not. What would be another kind of negative reaction that is not necessarily a food allergy? So that would be things like food sensitivities or intolerances. A great example, the best example I think is milk intolerance because most people are familiar with that, right? So milk intolerance causes GI symptoms, causes bloating, it can cause diarrhea, it can happen pretty quickly depending on the amount of lactose that you take in at one time. Um, so it can feel like a food allergy if you've never had it before for the, you know, or, or if you've never, if you don't really understand the difference, mm -hmm. you can think it's a food allergy. And a lot of people will actually say, I'm allergic to milk. And, but I can have ice cream. Or <laughs> in that case, you're not allergic to milk. You might have lactose intolerance, but you're not allergic to milk. But I think because people confuse the two, then they definitely, um, that makes it appear that there are far more food allergies than there are. So I have a negative response to some raw fruits. Oh, yeah. Like I can't eat a raw pear or a raw red apple but uh -huh. granny smith apples seem to be fine for hmm. some reason um and most recently cherries which i oh, love no. and i used to love cherries <laughs> but what happens when i eat any of those foods my mouth starts to water and yeah. i throw up oh and then i'm fine after i've thrown up i'm fine uh -huh. or if i just hit those with a little lemon juice uh -huh. to denature the protein or hit it with a you know in a skillet with some butter and brown sugar it's fine <laughs> yeah so that would be an example of like a food intolerance but it's not an allergy no <laughs> okay gotcha. so this is so this is even a little bit more it's not complicated it's just different so some people have a condition called oral allergy syndrome and it sounds like that's what you're describing the mm -hmm. vomiting is a little bit different maybe but the but with oral allergy syn syndrome what happens is it's really a matter of cross reactivity do you have environmental allergies? Yeah, I do. I have yeah. ragweed allergy. Okay, so yeah. most people who have oral allergy syndrome have environmental allergies. So you're allergic to tree pollen or you're allergic to dust or some, not dust, but you're allergic to some sort of, um, usually some sort of environmental allergy or allergen. And then the ragweed your body... And pine. Yeah. <laughs> so your body cross-reacts with other types of proteins that look the same or look similar. Birch pollen is a really good example of um, of a pollen that that um, that cross reacts with apples. So people who have these these environmental allergies sometimes experience oral allergy syndrome with fruits or vegetables that are uh, that are raw or that are unpeeled. So the pollen that's on the outside, mm -hmm, the protein that's on the outside of the fruit can cause oral symptoms, itching, swelling tingling, discomfort in the mouth, tongue, and throat. Um, and then... Oh, I'm going to peel a cherry and see if it has... <laughs> I'm well, that cooking thing. it, cooking it makes a big difference. I mean, There's I think nothing like a raw, oh, like those I know, red cherries are so good. I love them. I love them. But you know, but they, but they might cause a problem for some people and yeah. it sounds like they're a problem for you. So you have to figure out what's the best way for you to eat it. And then, you know, if peeling cherries makes it doable for you. Hey, I'm all for it. <laughs> Trying it. <laughs> but apples definitely, you know, are easy for people to peel um, or cook or slice, you know, slice up and then bake and, you know, or saute with a little cinnamon and lemon juice. And, you know, that makes it really delicious. 
delicious and brown much more sugar. tolerable. She didn't say anything about the brown <laughs> sugar and butter. I'm not against brown sugar and butter. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think the, the point is that, that that's cross-reactivity. It doesn't cause anaphylaxis. It's not, you know, there's some disagreement about is it allergy, is it not allergy. I mean, it is definitely an allergic type reaction. But it's not going to cause anaphylaxis. It's not life-threatening. It's uncomfortable. And so you have to try to figure out a way that makes you, makes it possible for you to eat those foods that you enjoy mm. in, in a different way. So carrots, another one. A lot of people have a problem with raw really? carrots. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's this oral allergy syndrome. So you can eat them cooked. Um, and peeling them might make it better. But, you know, carrots, not an easy one. Um, raw for some people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And one I get a lot, actually. <laughs> So um, we've talked about what a food allergy reaction is like, and I'll make sure that on the post we have some links to some um, really good, clear information about what a food allergy reaction is like. Um, but if you think you have a food allergy, you know, really the next step is to talk to your doctor, get a referral to an allergist, and get a clear understanding of whether or not you have a true allergy. Let's talk a little bit about, be about what a food intolerance is, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about sensitivities and wrap it up. Okay. Um, does that sound good? Sounds great. All right, so intolerances, as we mentioned, you know, as we talked about like a milk intolerance, typically intolerances happen as the result of a lack of an enzyme. For, for some reason, your body doesn't have an enzyme that it needs. In the case of lactose intolerance, the enzyme is called lactase, and lactase is made inside your intestines. And if you don't have this enzyme or you don't have enough of this enzyme, then lactose is not broken down, and that unbroken lactose makes its way through your digestive system and causes all kinds of havoc. So the pill that you can take, is that the enzyme? Yep. Oh, cool. Exactly. Yep. So that's the enzyme. And that's one way to manage lactose intolerance certainly is to take the enzyme. When you when you consume something that has lactose, you can also use, you know, choose other foods that don't contain lactose or are lower in lactose. Because even people who have lactose intolerance oftentimes can eat foods that have a little bit of lactose in it, but they can't have a lot. Oh, yeah, that, that's me. I yeah. can eat cheese all day, but a glass of milk is going to be a problem. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And even some people can even drink like three or four ounces of milk without a problem. But when you get to like eight ounces of milk, forget it. That's going to cause all kinds of problems. So, you know, just limiting the amount or choosing lower lactose foods is certainly one way. And then you can also get lact lactose-free milk and those kinds of things if you still want to be able to drink milk. So that's an easy one to manage. Um, there are other kinds of of intolerances that involve other kinds of foods. Um, I don't want to get too much into those, but things like fructose can cause a problem from, for some people who've got like a fructose intolerance. Really? Yeah. Think, so I've heard of people saying that they can't eat watermelon. Is that, would that be it like It could be something like that. Sure. Allergy? Yeah, it could be something like, it could be an allergy. Melon allergy is actually not all that uncommon. Really? So it could be one or the other. Yeah, yeah. I know. You can actually be allergic to anything. You can be, you know, a lot, I used to think when I was early in my career and I didn't know a lot about food allergies I would hear people talk about you know these kind of random allergies pineapple allergy and I would be like that person's making that up <laughs> but now I know that that they're actually probably not making it up I mean they could be wrong if they self-diagnose that they, they probably don't have a pineapple allergy and that would be a very unusual and a rare allergy but now I know that it really can you really can be allergic to anything wait pineapple allergy. <laughs> so my mouth itches when I eat yeah. pineapple but that's probably the oral allergy the, um like the acid in pineapple oh it that could be that, that too yeah sure it could be that that is a very high acid food. You know, it can be a lot of different things and people are different. So I think right. now, 
that I'm further along in my career. <laughs> I understand a lot more about the individual nature of people's food reactions. And, you know, I've, I've worked with people who've had all kinds of adverse reactions to food and you just work with them where they are and figure out whether it's the real deal or whether maybe they're confusing it with something else. And, you know, my goal as a dietitian really is to help re- liberalize people's diet as much as possible. I don't want people to restrict their diet any more than they have to. That's I love food. That's such a cool thing. I just <laughs> I like imagined you with a cape on. I am the diet liberator. <laughs> Hey, I love that. That's awesome. I need to get myself a cake. I thought of it that way. (laughs) So that's intolerances. And with sensitivities, it's a little trickier because um, food sensitivities are one of those things that's kind of, we know there are some people who have adverse reactions to foods and we can't understand exactly why. There aren't good tests to determine whether or not somebody has a food sensitivity. Uh, so I have seen these like mail in, mm-hmm. you know, the, I don't know how they work, but <laughs> where you can just mail in this blood kit. I guess yeah. you take your blood yourself. I, that's <laughs> I think they send a nurse. <laughs> oh, do they? Yeah. Cool. Cause I was like, I'm not sticking myself, but you just mail it into some place and then, then they give you a report back that right. tells you, oh, you're allergic to X, Y, and Z. Don't eat it. Yeah. So some of those are, a, are like a finger prick and some of them you actually arrange to have a nurse come to your house or to go somewhere and have blood drawn and then they send it in. So the reality is that those tests are lab specific. They're proprietary tests that are owned by a specific lab or company. There is no test that tests for food sensitivities like that that are um, that are validated by third party peer reviewed organizations. And there are none that are actually recommended by like the American Academy of Allergy um, and Immunology. Those tests are are definitely buyer beware. There is no research that supports their ability to diagnose food sensitivities. So I would not recommend them to anybody. A better way and really the best way to diagnose a food sensitivity is going to be through working with a dietitian who's very knowledgeable about this issue, doing an elimination test of some sort, an elimination diet rather, where you identify by using the diet history or diet recording tool like we talked about. You know, Mm -hmm. you just write down everything you eat and then you write down signs or symptoms and then you figure out what's connected to what and then you start to eliminate those specific foods you know one of the things I always try to avoid with people is over restriction you know I don't I want people to eat a a nutritious diverse diet but I want them to be able to enjoy it too so you know I think working with a dietitian who's judicious in their elimination is one of the best ways to to go at this and then you have to reintroduce the food so in order to know for sure whether the relief you're getting if you get relief by an elimination diet is because of eliminating a food that you have a negative reaction to you have to reintroduce that food so that's the step that I think a lot of people miss so with an elimination diet you're just eliminating one thing at a time so you're you know writing down what you've been eating you've Notice that every time you eat strawberries, you have some type of reaction or response. And so you eliminate that one food for a period of time, but continue to eat everything else to see if that response goes away. Yeah, if that's what it is. Then you know it's something else on that list. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And and for some people it's gonna be remember I mentioned like fructose can be an issue for some people. Mm -hmm. So for some people it may be a category of foods and there's actually a diet um protocol called the FODMAP diet that we talked about on the show before. before. Yeah. And that has to do with some carbohydrates that can cause a problem for some people. And um in that case, you may eliminate a lot of different foods and then start to introduce them back in slowly to see what causes problems and what doesn't. The key there to the elimination diet and diagnosing sensitivities really is being very intentional and it's that reintroduction phase. Because if you think about like what I said about food allergies, right? Oral food challenge is the best way to diagnose it. 
same thing for food sensitivity. Really, it's like, okay, but I took that food out. Now let me try it again and see how I feel. If I if I eat it again and then I feel bad again after feeling better eliminating it, okay, then I may have a sensitivity to that food and it may make sense for me to eliminate that food from my diet in order to feel better. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we talked about food allergies, intolerances, and sensitivities. And now I want to just um, sort of reiterate what I said about the importance of proper diagnosis. Because misdiagnosing food allergies or sensitivities or intolerances can really have a huge impact on somebody's life, right? It can cause a lot of anxiety, especially if it's a food allergy. It can cause a huge amount of anxiety for a family. It can have a negative impact on quality of life for children and for adults. For children, it can be a real problem with growth. It can really cause um, nutritional deficiencies that lead to growth problems. So the more foods that are eliminated, the more of a problem it can be. So that's why I like to be kind of isolating. Absolutely. You you know, a child going to a birthday party and not feeling like there's anything that they can eat there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't, and I think that, you know, for me, like having been in pediatrics, I really feel strongly that, you know, kids need to feel as included as possible. And food is one of those things that is whenever possible, they need to be included. Now, you know, some kids have severe food allergies and we have to work around that. And you have to find mm-hmm. ways to work around that. And it can be done. There's no reason it can't be done that those kids can't still feel included. You just have to work a little harder at it. You know, mm-hmm. it involves a lot of education, a lot of compassion, um, but it's totally doable. And I think the same thing goes for sensitivities. But my goal is really to try to reduce as many barriers as possible for people so they can eat as many of the foods as they like without any restrictions or with as few restrictions as possible. And the other reason I think this is really important is about financial cost, because there is some research that shows that having food allergies increases the financial burden on a family and an individual because they have more more health costs and food can cost more, especially if they're buying replacement kinds of foods. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You think about the cost of like non-wheat flour (laughs) versus your bag of, you know, gold flour that you can get for two bucks. Right. Insane. The difference in cost. Right. Absolutely. And if you're buying prepared foods that are like gluten-free or that are, you know, that are wheat-free, it can be very, very expensive. And so, you know, as a dietitian, I usually try to work with people to find other foods that can substitute for that, that are less expensive, that fit into their budget. And I think a good dietitian can do that with anybody. You know, if you've got a problem, if you're diagnosed with a food allergy, you need some help find a good dietitian to help you with that and um how do and you find a dietitian i mean oh, i found good you question. at work but how do you find a dietitian <laughs> well you can go to eatright.org um eatright.org is the website for the academy of nutrition and dietetics and it has a find an expert button in the it used to be in the upper right hand corner i hope it's still there <laughs> it's definitely on the main page and you can just type in your zip code and then you can find dietitians in your area and some dietitians offer telehealth services, so you can even do it, you know, via Skype or by phone if you can't find somebody in your area who specializes in food allergies. Is that covered by insurance? Sometimes. Oh, wow. Sometimes, okay. yeah. It really depends on the practitioner. And you can check with your health provider for sure. So if you've got certain type of health insurance, you can reach out to your health provider and ask, you know, i really like to see a dietitian. We have this diagnosis. Now you may need to have a, a proper diagnosis, right? Gotcha. So you got to work with your physician, get the right diagnosis, and then you can be eligible for some additional support. But even if it's not covered by insurance, I would make the case that that small investment or even if it's a larger investment up front with a dietitian who's got the experience to help you create a safe, healthy, nutritious diet um, that 
replaces the foods that you've had to eliminate or helps you figure out what that is, it's worth the investment up front so that down the road you have a healthier diet, you have fewer complications, you have a better quality of life, and you've got reduced health costs. To me, it's worth it. Yeah, that sounds worth it to me too. Yeah, absolutely. Although I did use the money that I set aside to hire a dietitian to get a dermatologist for retin-A. But. <laughs> <laughs> but priorities, priorities, priorities. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered a ton of information today about food allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances. And I hope this information has been helpful. You might still have questions. So again, I would encourage you to send us an email at southernfriedgirlfriends at gmail com. Let us know if you've got questions. Um, and I think that that's probably all I can say in the time that we have, D. You feel like we covered it? I think we covered <laughs> as much as we could. I mean, it's such a huge topic with a lot of misunderstanding and anxiety surrounding mm -hmm. it. But I think this was a good start. Maybe we'll do a part two. Sounds good. Sounds great. Well, as, as always, I have to say thanks to you, Dee, for being my awesome partner in this venture. And, um, and we have one question, the question we end every show with. What's the one thing you're going to do to be healthier today? I am so excited. So last night I decided I'm going to buy some skates. Oh, I used to love to skate when I was fun. little. Like four wheel roller skates? Yes. Oh, I can't do the inline. I'd be <laughs> on my butt. I know. But I was out on the trail yesterday and I was walking and I saw this guy come skating down. Uh. And I was like, I want skates. <laughs> So I'm running to the sporting goods store when we finish to get some skates. I'm I so love excited. that. That is awesome, girl. Maybe we'll go roller skating together because yes. I love roller skates? skating. I can get some. I have inline skates, but I don't want those anymore. I Are want the hard? four wheelers. They make my ankles hurt. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just that that note, the stopping in the yeah. back. I don't know that I could get used yeah. to it. I would be on my face or my butt. I know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the four wheelers are just super cool anyway. Yeah, they're retro now, right? Yes. That was <laughs> so cute. We're all known to be bit. retro. Yeah, I'm so excited. What I about you? That. What are you doing? So I am gonna do some really good deep stretching today. Mm, yeah, I'm feeling it. Glorious. Oh, it is. I think it will be. I, I spent two days. I traveled um, for business this week and I went to Chicago and I went to Chicago one day and I came home the next day. And in between oh I was God. at a conference. <laughs> so it, I sat a lot mm -hmm. in the last 48 hours. And so and then I slept. So I'm like my body just feels really stiff and tight. So today I'm setting aside some time to really get some deep stretching in. Inspired by our yoga, our yoga, <laughs> that's um, right, with yeah, 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 yeah. I think I, I think I'm definitely that's my that's my goal. So, all right, people, thanks for listening. We love having you as part of our audience, and we hope that you have been inspired to be healthier today. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. Hey, girls, this is Sherry again. I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe and take a minute to write a review. It really helps other people find the show. And if you enjoy the content, share it with your favorite girlfriends. Dee and I want this to be an opportunity for you to be part of the conversation. So we're adding an Ask the Dietitian feature. To do that, we need your questions. Please send those to us at southernfriedgirlfriends at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear your questions and comments. Thanks again for being part of this journey with us. 